As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. The Bloomberg event structure this year is extraordinary. Uh, We've got Brad Stone and Emily Chang with a technology conference, which is world-class. Look for that in the coming weeks. And right now, this moment in New York, there is Bloomberg Invest. Brian Moynihan will be speaking from Bank of America. Other worthies, Ray Dalio, I believe Mr. Druckenmiller is going to darken the door. That's all fine and well. And there will also be tactical discussion around Bloomberg Invest. Leading that is Seema Shaw, Chief Global Strategist at Principal Asset Management, who joins us this morning. I love, Seema, how buried in your note you have, we are underweight in some way equities, slightly underweight. You know, you got the adverbs going there. How do you do an equity strategy when you see what NVIDIA is doing now? Oh, well, okay. So within our slight (coughs) underweight to equities, we actually have an overweight to large cap. The reason we have the way overweight to large caps, which we made back in February, was actually a cyclical reason, which was threefold. One was that you have, we believe, a slowdown coming, potentially recession. We have the towards the end of the Fed hiking cycle. And the third thing is that large caps typically have a greater international exposure for revenue than you would do on your small cap. So that was a reason. And now you've added in the NVIDIA. Uh, so actually, that is playing out fairly well. But of course, you have to think about your S&P 500 target. Could it go back to the September low? Well, as long as tech is doing this well, the maths just doesn't add up. Maths doesn't add up for the S&P, the Nasdaq 100. Does the maths add up for the Eurostoxx 50? Well, that's an interesting one. The Eurostoxx 50, I mean, we, we keep having this conversation with clients about US exceptionalism. About six months ago, everyone was like, well, look, maybe for the next decade, we could have higher inflation. This is value trade. Therefore, Europe is in the, the ascendancy. And then you have this movement back into IA, AI, sorry. And actually, the US is back. And that's what everyone is talking about. And certainly from our perspective, yes, as a cyclical or as a tactical trade, at the moment, the US is not our favorite region. But if you're looking at over a 10-year period, do you want to be focused on the US or Europe? Well, it's 100% US. Back home, you've just come from London. How are they thinking about this now? They've been piling into LVMH. Stock was flying. Data out of China starts to weaken. Are they abandoning that trade quickly? Yeah, I think there's a lot of disappointment and I think they're quickly cutting those positions. And the thing is, is that, look, at the moment, so many people are positioned for bearishness in the in the broad market. They've got to cut wherever makes the most sense where there isn't as much um, confusion. 
And I think with the China story, there is a general feeling that this is going to be very disappointing. The second half of the year, it could still reach certainly the GDP target, but we're not looking anything like the kind of stimulus measures that we would have seen in previous cycles. So yes, the China trade is coming down. And actually, as a result of that, because of the European um, exposure to China, that is also coming down as well. You said that people are looking for ways to express their bearish views. They're struggling to find the places. What other places are you seeing them express their bearish views at a time when it's dangerous to do so and it's unclear the best way to really express that? Well, if you have, if you can do broad asset allocation, then really the place to be focused is fixed income. Core fixed income is your best place to show that bearishness. Um, quality, defensive, those are the areas. Probably high yield is not the area that you want to be focusing on when you, if you believe that a slowdown is coming. And then there's the core part of it, which is still alternatives. That, that trade continues to play on fairly well. It provides really good diversification. I mean, we saw that during the SVB crisis, the things like infrastructure continue to pour, perform extremely well. So if you are one of the people that believes that there is an economic slowdown coming, there are ways to play this, uh, which maybe are not as uh, controversial as certainly what you see for the equity market. Have you shifted your view in terms of what you believe is defensive? And I ask this because we keep hearing about how Apple and some of the big tech stocks have gone from high beta, interest rate sensitive sectors to suddenly the stalwarts of the market, the, the engines of growth, the place that you have to be if you want to be safe. Are you buying that? Well, look, the growth trade is typically where you want to go if you believe that the economic environment is turning more negative. That has always been the case. Only all of our models show that same story. Um, the AI is that additional secular story where there may be well be froth, but certainly we buy into the idea that technology and not just AI, but technology is there for the future. We actually made a very reluctant decision to color tech exposure last year in last, last January in 2022 because of the Fed hiking cycle coming up. Um, but we continue to be the long term believers in tech, which is why we went in, plus the very important cyclical factors. Well, at the start of 22, that was the right decision because tech was just brutal. Can I just finish on the lows of October? Where are you on the lows of October now? Because we used to go back and forth about whether we'd retest those lows. They're 20 points ago. We've had a 20% rally off the bottom. Are we retesting those lows? I, I'll be honest. We, I think this is a really, really difficult decision to make. So look, the tech story means that it's unlikely, right? You could see a little bit of a pullback because of the froth in the market, yes. But if you don't get that pullback and you get the momentum story that Julian was talking about yesterday, if you get that momentum pulling up the rest of the market... And actually, then you're getting a melt up, potential deeper recession down the line. I do believe if you don't get a recession sooner, the later it is, the harder it becomes. So you want to get this out of the way. Um, and if that happens, then maybe you get another move up. <coughs> but next year will be a tougher story. Seema, good to see you in New York. Great to catch up. Seema Shah there of Principal Asset Management. Briefing us now, Marilyn Watson with BlackRock, head of global fundamental fixed income strategy. Uh, Marilyn, the pain in the bond market is down 17% on the Bloomberg total return index. And we've come back six or 7%. We've come back. Mm -hmm. Just a simple question. Now what? Do you presume price up, yield down? Do you assume a new leveling? Or do we revisit price down, yield up? Yeah, so as you say, we've seen a huge amount of volatility in fixed income markets in particular this year, which has um, exceeded that in the equity market and other markets as well. Um, I think now that we've seen the resolution of the debt ceiling uh, negotiations and uncertainty around that, we now know that we're going to have a huge amount of issuance coming. Um, the US Treasury needs to build up the TGA balance again. So we know we have a lot of issuance coming there. 
Um, and that amount of supply obviously will need to be absorbed by the market. Um, on the other hand, that is going to also obviously you know drain some sort of liquidity from the system as well. But I think at the moment, you know, when we talk about FOMC rhetoric, when we look at the data coming through, we saw uh, you know in terms of the jobs data, the mm-hmm. labour market remains incredibly tight. We have seen some softening in terms of sentiment, obviously, and you know other data. But you know, consumers continue to spend. The real estate housing market um, remains on a pretty solid footing. Um, and so the economy actually in the U.S. remains on a very robust footing at the moment. And so I think, you know, coming into next week to say all eyes will certainly be on the CPI data. Uh, inflation is right. still you know, far <clears throat> above the, the Fed's target. And so they may choose to pause or to skip or however you want to phrase it. But it's certainly not a done deal that there won't be more hikes to come. But I think, you know, they need to absorb and continue to look at, you well, know, the, the lags in the transmission, um, you know, the previous uh, rate hikes. So take that, <coughs> excuse me, take that macro view and bring it over to a strategy. Do you manage mm-hmm. for coupon or do you manage for total return? Well, we try to manage for both. So I think if you have a very flexible, um, you know, unconstrained approach to fixed income, you can have both. And so at the moment you can have, very high quality, decent carry, which given the spreads today, you also do have a decent amount of buffer now. Um, you would have to see a significant repricing uh, from here to actually see um, you know, a further loss in total return. So I think you can have both. What we try to do is construct a portfolio where you know, we have um, you know, low volatility, where we have decent carry, decent liquidity, um, and we have a very wide range of different positions as well. So we can take advantage of relative value positions where we're stripping out the beta effectively. And, you know, t- in today's environment where we see a lot more dispersion between individual bond issuers in between individual names, it's much easier as well to, to capture that relative value. Um, you know, we're taking advantage of the different valuations between, you know, for example, some names in emerging markets, uh, in high yield, in investment grade corporate. So, I mean, the bond market today is a very different beast to the one that was a year ago, five years ago. And I think the amount of opportunities out there now are so much larger that if you, you know, if you can, you know, construct a very, very balanced portfolio with a lot of different risk factors, you can get both the income and the carry, but you can also help to protect returns. I can't remember the last time that two massive bond shops have had such divergent views on where long-term rates are going to go. And I'm thinking of you, BlackRock, as well as J.P. Morgan Asset Management that see you've got Bob Michael saying the entire curve is going to be at 3% or below in the near term. How do you push back against that, that feeling that we are not going to go back to a low-rate era and see something that does depart from the past 20 years? So I think... First of all, we do think that inflation, it's coming down, but it's going to remain elevated and at a, you know, higher levels than we've seen in previous cycles. I think, you know, inflation is or looks like it's going to be relatively persistent. Uh, secondly, I think, you know, the Fed is going to remain higher for longer as well. And as I say, it, you know, it may well move more. Um, we'll see what they do next, next, um, next week um, and in the coming months as well. But given the economic data we have at the moment, then it's, you know, highly likely or very possible that the Fed could hike again. And then, as I say, we have this huge amount of issuance, um, you know, that's coming in the market as well. Um, and, and there's, I mean, on the other side of that, obviously, we do have a lot of demand from investors who are still parked in cash or who are parked in money market funds um, and, you know, somewhat on the sidelines. But I think when you look at long term, when you look at 
the economy, when you look at growth. Um, and you were talking about the tech sector before, we're continuing to see a huge amount of uh, investment in that area that's continuing to drive productivity. So I think there are a huge number of factors that um, mean that you know, inflation and rates will remain higher for longer. How much higher? Where do you see the curve kind of settling out at? Um, so it's hard to see. I mean, we could see um, a little bit higher sort of, you know, uh, from here um, over the next few months, depending on how the economic data comes through, depending on what we see in terms of the stresses that continue to pull through in the in the banking sector and elsewhere. Um, I mean, I think there are reasonable levels now. Um, if you look at, you know, certainly the fixed income market compared to the stock market, then, uh, you know, I would say the equity market maybe is overpriced. But I think from here, you could see them a little bit higher, but it really depends on the data that we see coming through in terms of inflation, in terms of the economy over the next few months. Usually it's the equity people commenting on bonds. Marilyn, that was a comment on equities there. It's kind of interesting to me. I've heard that a couple of times now in the last 24 hours, Marilyn. The bond investors throwing some shade at equities, what's that about? Well, it's been a long time coming, John. I mean, it's been, it's been years since uh, I could say that I, uh, you know, I, I really think that, you know, that now the bond market has a huge amount of value to offer. Marilyn Watson of BlackRock. Marilyn, thank you. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. We need a political uh, brief here. She's hugely popular with all of you. Thank you so much for supporting Wendy Schiller of Brown University, director of the Taubman Center for American uh, Politics. Give me the history here on how people of low polling, either party, can advance towards the primaries. If I see from 538, 54%, DeSantis less than half that, and the others are all single digit, is there any history, Professor Schiller, of single digit people doing better? Um, no, 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 no substantial history. I mean, you remember the expression, the big mo? Um, and we were talking about George Herbert Walker Bush way back when. And we talked about the big mo. 
uh, and people perceived other people as more palatable, and he ended up getting the nomination in 1988, for example. Um, so I think that the issue here is the difference for Donald Trump in August, when the first debate comes, is that everybody on the stage will be attacking him in this subtle way, but they are going to use him as the target. That's a new position for him. He wasn't really the front runner when he first announced, and when he first got to the stage, he emerged as a star, but everybody else was trying to make their own case. Now they have to attack him subtly, not to anger his supporters, and right. make a case for themselves. That's the big problem for the debate for everybody challenging Trump. How do you do that well? There's not enough airtime in a debate with 10 people if that's how many people are going to be on the stage. Professor, you have a definitive textbook, which you know is, is Great Civics 101 on America. I told you once, Wendy, that you needed to rename the textbook Follow the Money. Is that what this is <laughs> yes. about? I mean, are all these people running because of a financial advantage in running? Well, that has become a new cottage industry that, you know, with the advent of social media and the way of making a reputation without the mainstream media, then you have a way of getting speaking gigs, of raising donations. I mean, it just changes everything. But I still think you need the biggest money donors to make it through the primary season. To really launch a challenge to Trump, for example, you need Chris Christie. Where's he going to get the money? There's a couple of people in Jersey that have given a lot of money to the Republican presidential campaigns in the past. Are they going to back Christie? Are they going to back Mike Pence? I mean, with enough really big money, you can run enough ads in some states where Trump may be the nominee, but not super solid, to dent him. Uh, but where are those big money donors going to line up? They haven't really announced for Trump, but they aren't really lining up. We saw a little movement towards DeSantis, but then they backed off when he had a pretty disastrous front, you know, uh, announcement of his campaign. So now where do they go? That will make a difference, exactly as John's saying, between now and August. Those signals are going to be important. One other signal that's going to be important is whether there's unification among the different Republican candidates on some key issues that affect the money that you're following, such as trade. How much is this sort of a unified view, not only against China, but in general, in a more sort of regionalization of trade, a pullback from sort of the traditional globalization models? Well, Lisa, this is an amazingly important point because our primaries are still regional, right? And so you still need the big money to worry about regulation and free trade and taxes. And that's pretty constant. That's what they've always worried about. But they also want stability and certainty. They don't want chaos. They don't want unpredictability. And it's funny because, not funny, but Trump, you know, presents pretty chaotic future. We don't know what he's ever going to do in any given moment. But now DeSantis has proven to be someone who may not be predictable, who may kind of want to jump the shark in terms of regulating business with his feud with Disney. Is he really a reliable investment? And that's what I think businesses are looking for. It's a traditional Republican platform, but it's also coupled with certainty and competence uh, in terms of smooth government uh, running. We saw McCarthy sent that signal clearly to Wall Street. I will make sure the trains run on time and I won't crash the economy. One big and question. that's a very clear signal. One big question I keep hearing from analysts on Wall Street is if the rhetoric on both sides of the aisle is rewarded if it's in inflammatory toward China in particular, saying that we want to isolate them. We are uh, in a huge rivalry with them. How are we going to soften the tensions even as Tony Blinken heads over to Beijing? Well, th that's, I mean, I think the question is how much knowledge or how much credibility do these Republican candidates for president have on foreign policy? You know, Trump made China the enemy, right? You know, very large tariffs. And then with, uh, with COVID, you know, blaming China. 
How's he going to walk that back? He's not going to be able to do that. Uh, and Ron DeSantis, you know, just had a big Asia trip trying to sell himself as somebody who can negotiate the world stage. You know, Mike Pence has a pretty calm demeanor. What's he going to do? How's he going to uh, sell himself this way? And the rest of the candidates don't really have, except for Nikki Haley, have a lot of foreign policy experience. So who's got the credibility in the Republican primary on China? And China doesn't even know. I mean, who do you really look to and say this person could get elected and we can do business with them? You know, that's where Biden has been somewhat measured with China, as you just point out. You know, Secretary of State is sort of attacking China, but not attacking China. Uh, and that's going to be somewhat calming as a signal, I think, to the business community. Wendy, there's one name that we haven't mentioned. Governor Yunkin, when there's this feeling at the moment from people I speak to that the worse that Governor DeSantis does, or rather the fact that he's not improving, the more Governor Yunkin thinks about making a run. How are you thinking about that one? You know, I, I just don't know that he has, you know, the ability to jump to the national stage with any force or energy. He's got a good platform. He won an election against somebody who was well-known uh, and not always well-liked, Terry McAuliffe, uh, in Virginia. So he got kind of lucky with his opposition. Uh, and Virginia is still a swing state. It's swung more to the right recently, but it's still a swing state. Do you really nominate for your nominee somebody who cannot absolutely deliver their own state? You know, DeSantis will deliver Florida. But yep. We saw Al Gore did not deliver Tennessee. These are things strategic people worry about, money people worry about. Can he sell himself really to money people to make a big enough launch? Interesting. Wendy, just wonderful to get your perspective. Wendy Schiller there of Brown University. Alberto Gallo of Andromeda Capital uh, Management. John, I want you to take bring in um, Alberto here, and I want you to bring him in off the detailed discussion on and off camera yesterday at PIMCO about what the moderate end and the long end is going to do. And you mentioned on the break the term premium. Bring that into the shock sure. that we could see price down and higher long-term yields. Well, I think you have to start with the inflation target of the Federal Reserve, which is 2%, and you have to make a call on what they're going to tolerate. PIMCO believes they'll tolerate two-point something. Claren has been very visible on it. The former Fed vice chair. And ultimately, they're going to carry on forecasting a return to two whilst accepting and tolerating two-point something. So something may be even approaching three. And with that in mind, there is a call on the long end that you start to price in and rebuild this so-called term premium around the inflation story, and you end up with a steeper curve. So that's the long end yields shifting higher. This is the call right now, Alberto, from the likes of PIMCO, and I think that you're thinking about a similar thing. So look, we had 500 basis points of hikes, and the job market is still pretty solid. So there's something central bankers are not doing, and that's the long end of curves. If you think about a large company in the US, you can fund at 3.6% roughly plus a spread, and then you can invest in T-bills. That's a carry trade. Same for homeowners. 98% of homeowners, according to Goldman Sachs research, has a mortgage that was issued at lower rates. So if you just hike the short end, even to 6%, that's not really tightening. You're doing half of your job as the Federal Reserve. So what you really need to do is to make sure that the long-end funding cost also goes up. That's how you tighten financial conditions. And so far, that hasn't happened. So it's really, you know, if central bankers are serious about what they're doing, there needs to be some steepening in the in the five-year and the 10-year point of the curve. And that's really what's going to hurt financial conditions. That's, that's going to tighten asset prices. But that hasn't happened yet. So let's make the policy call. Do you think they need to rethink QT, the kind of maturities they let roll off, maybe even think about selling? So suppose you get to target. Suppose, you know, you hike 
close to you know high five, maybe six percent, and then inflation remains above two percent. We think it will be above three at the end of this year in the U.S. Wow. And what do you do with QT? You know, you, you need to start thinking about QT. You can't just hike the, the short-term rate. And so you need to think about balance sheet reduction. There are no targets on that. Remember, the Bank of England talked briefly about it at the, at the end of May and gilts widened 50 basis points in the 10-year. So there is a lot of sensitivity there. There's a lot of banks, but also non-bank financial institutions that are long duration, and we need asset prices to, to come down. So we, we're not going to have a recession here, but we are in an asset price recession. The investable world is shrinking. You know, China potentially is not investable. And so everyone is going into fewer assets in the U.S. like tech or like high-quality credit. Everyone is long high-quality credit. You know, surprise, surprise, it has a very high duration. So we don't like it in this environment where there's a lot of treasury issuance and the long enough curve can can steepen. But there's this issue if you do see exactly the scenario that you're talking about, which is a surprisingly hawkish Federal Reserve. Wouldn't that be a huge support for the dollar, especially in this non-recession kind of period where people are consolidating their wagers on an area of dynamism and growth? Look, the, the pain trade now is clearly, you know, markets going up and, you know, other currencies going up. But if we have a persistently hawkish central bank and if the long end goes up, then the, the consequence for markets are pretty heavy. You know, we're, we're having VIX at 14 now. Uh, credit spreads in CDS in particular at record lows. So, you know, there's some pockets of value, but you want to really be careful about that uh, that move in the second half of the year where liquidity is going to contract. There's a lot of treasury issues, ECB, QT, and then the BOJ exiting uh, yield curve control. How do, you, how do you play, though, a pain trade? So essentially, you, it's very important to be able to sustain the trade here. There are some longs that are very interesting with double-digit yields. So you know, obviously rates are higher, but you can get 10% plus yields on credit in some niches of the market. Some some of them are in Europe, which has been unloved. Give us an example of that. Double-digit yield where? So you know, talk about national champion banks in. Um, Greece or Italy. Greece is going to investment grade this year, post-elections. So there's very few countries that are going into the investable universe from being less investable. And Greece is one of them, from high yield to investment grade. This is what you're doing. So, I mean, I can name the names. You're thinking about the Unicredits of this world, these big banks, national champion banks, Italy, across Europe. Is that what you've been doing? It's more popular now, but obviously March and April, you know, there was a big opportunity to buy some of these. And, and so we're keeping them. And and then also, so European high yield, you know, we're having a, a differential of around six months or maybe longer in the credit cycle between Europe and US. So the faults are going to rise, but they're going to say three and a half to four in Europe. They're probably going to five in the US. Everyone is long high quality credit. It's the easiest call, but spreads at 70 basis points on investment, on investment grade, they don't really pay you. So you need, to write, you need to barbell your portfolio. You need to have some bills if you want and have some high yield. Has there ever been a time where you've been this positive on European banks? And I ask this because you flagged the joke that what's the first thing that an alien does when he lands on Earth? He destroys a European bank. So why is it that now you think this time is different? So that's that's basically tells you that people normally are pretty bearish on on you know on Europe and and we had peak bearishness in March and in April. So that's where I got excited. Unfortunately, the window was very short. Uh, it wasn't like a it wasn't a long-lived panic, but there's still value. And look, we do think something else will break between now and year end. So we're keeping some powder dry. 
how much does China really factor into whether you're going to be willing to double down on your European bet? So, look, China is definitely been a drag on EMs. Um, there's a lot of stressed credits in EMs, a lot of countries that have restructured, but unfortunately a lot of value traps uh, there. In, in Europe, the uh, Chinese, the, the foreign demand is, is weaker, but uh, domestic spending is really high. There is no government, even in the periphery, that has talked about austerity right. as far as I can remember. So that's, that's very supportive. Nice bond talk. How did Napoli do it? I mean, Napoli was not considered. How did Naples in Italy do so well this year? I mean, Naples is always a contrarian trade, right? It took 20 years since Maradona, but... Uh, okay, we call that Tottenham, but Tottenham has a new coach in the last 24 hours from Glasgow, right? They do, from what Celtic, What are the best yeah. practices of, of Napoli? Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah. Napoli. What is the best practices in Napoli that the loser Tots can do? They, when was the last time the Tots won? Like 1850? Oh, I couldn't I tell you. Yeah. What is the best practice to make it a surprise next year where... Tottenham does better than good. I think they've been investing in players that were under undervalued, and uh, you know it's definitely a team that has less um, less um, capacity, less spending capacity than others. But you know, it so shows you that That's the underdog can make it. it. They've got a history of picking up some fantastic players and then selling them on for huge sums of money. So this summer it's going to be interesting to see whether they can hold on to those players. Really interesting man is, a, is Mr. De Laurentiis, who owns Napoli. Also, the I think guy. in the family, yeah, yeah in the yeah. family they also own Bari which is the, the city in Pugliaton, which is looking to get promoted this year to Serie A. So that family's having a great year. Okay. A fantastic I just year. It's exciting. I see all these changes, and it's, Frank, it's Greek to me. I like the, the, the Greek uh, investment grade idea. But the, the idea here of Tottenham having a new coach from Glasgow, is that right? From Celtic. From yeah. Celtic, it's pronounced. Not right. from Rangers. What's from he going to do, come in and raise hell? They need to spend money and do something about that squad. I just get the feeling, Tom, that this is going to be a repeat of what we've seen okay. before time and time again with that club. Alberto, we've got to leave it there. Alberto Gallo of Andromeda Capital Management. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising healthcare costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
It is a global growth story that's under adjustment. John, let's review it now quickly. I usually don't do this, but I think it's so important. You've got four, five, six global institutions. I'm going to say Gita Gopinath at the IMF and her team with the Bloomberg OECD, who we're going to do in a moment here. And boy, it's been underplayed, the shift out one year, two years, three years, to something. I, used, I remember talking to Larian about this years ago, and the benchmark was 3% growth is a global recession. I think we're there. Yeah. And it's been underplayed. OECD readjusting and recalibrating. Claire Lombardelli joins us right now, chief economist at OECD in Paris with their adjustment. Claire, let me just cut to the chase. At the margin, does OECD cons- con- confirm the shocking duration of weakness that IMF modeled a number of months ago. We have global growth improving over the period that we're forecasting today. So we expect global growth to moderate to 2.7% in 2023 and then edge up slightly to 2.9% in 2024. These are historically low numbers for the global uh, for the global economy. We've seen higher rates in, in the past. So the outlook is certainly without without change and without action, the outlook would be for global growth to return, but to be at weak levels. Claire, these are shocking numbers. Am I wrong? And for all of our listeners and viewers, that 3% growth is a global recession with that sort of 3% view? Can OECD say it is a global recession? It's not a global recession. We're projecting that the global economy is going to grow at 2.7 and then 2.3%. That's not a recession, but it's a lower level of growth than we have seen historically. Right now, when we look forward at the potential for fiscal stimulus, you want governments to pull back. Why? So what we saw is fiscal policy played a really important role during the crisis. And in 2022, governments extended high levels of fiscal support. And that was necessary to prevent the impact of the war being greater than it otherwise was. But now as we're seeing prices, energy prices falling and some some other prices beginning to fall, it's time to target that fiscal support better so that it's only going to the vulnerable people who, who need it. And it's time to remove away from the blanket support that was put in place in immediate response to the crisis. People have been pre- uh, predicting a recession session for quite a while. And we're at a time when in the U.S., the promise of artificial intelligence seems to be upending all of the pessimism and really pushing people into equities. How do you feature the concept of artificial intelligence, the concepts of some of the technological advancements in your forecast? So, as you say, technology is evolving rapidly and the potential upside from that in terms of productivity gain is is you know potentially very, very high. It's quite... At, at this early stage of understanding what the impact of things like artificial intelligence can be, there are some estimates out there. They're at this point quite uncertain. And so I think we're going to learn a lot over the coming months and years of, about the impact of artificial intelligence in terms of feeding it through to the numbers. There's clearly a high potential upside from artificial intelligence in terms of productivity <coughs> and other technological advances, but quite hard right. to put a number on that at the moment as we're learning what, what it's capable of and also what the other wider impacts will be on labor markets, on competition and the like. Claire, you bring an incredibly sophisticated British view of economics, which has enjoyed, and I I mean that facetiously, you've enjoyed horrific inflation and enduring inflation in the United Kingdom. Now, the phrase that's tossed around, Bloomberg News mentions this, and maybe OECD, is an inflation-plagued recovery. What is your optimism that the global system can disinflate? 
So inflate, we project inflation to fall quite rapidly this year and, and into 2024 as well from the high levels that we've seen. Obviously, there is a risk to that, particularly from core inflation and tight labour markets in particular mean that wages have, have are expected to, to rise. That said, there's a lot of potential out there for the labour market in terms of bringing more people into the labour market. A lot of opportunity if we bring more people into the labour market, that will help on that side. So there's an opportunity to bring more women, older workers, people with health conditions and disabilities. If you bring more people into the labour market, that will ease some of those pressures. Can we just talk about the nature of inflation and the contribution from those tight labour markets to the headline inflation that we witness every single month? Just how important is that tight labour market to the inflation pressure we're seeing currently? Because there is some debate around that as to whether the Federal Reserve should still believe in that dreaded T word, transitory, and just wait a little longer. I mean, obviously, the picture differs for different countries, but tight labour markets are a key part of what is going on at the moment. They're a key part of why we're seeing the headline, why headline inflation is coming down. Core inflation is proving to be more persistent and in some ways is, is going up in some countries still. And that is mainly driven by tight labour markets and those what we thought were transitory inflationary pressures feeding into uh, wage, wage pressures and so less, staying a little longer. The latest on the OECD from the chief economist, Claire Lombardelli there. Claire, wonderful to catch up with you. Thanks for that outlook. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.